0: Today we have Brian Nosek on the podcast. Brian is co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science that operates the Open Science Framework. The Center for Open Science is enabling open and reproducible research practices worldwide. Brian is also a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Virginia. He received his PhD from Yale University in 2002. He co-founded Project Implicit, a multi-university collaboration for research and education investigating implicit cognition. Thoughts and feelings that occur outside of awareness or control. Brian investigates the gap between values and practices, such as when behavior is influenced by factors other than one's intentions and goals. Research applications of this interest include implicit bias, decision-making, attitudes, ideology, morality, innovation, and barriers to change. Nosek applies this interest to improve the alignment between personal and organizational values and practices. In 2015, he was named one of Nature's 10 and to the Chronicle for Higher Education influence list. Brian, so glad to chat with you today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Quite a lengthy bio there. <laughs> we can keep going. I've got all kinds of history with my family, <laughs> but maybe we should talk yeah. about it. Well, you, uh,
0: we, can, we can get to that if you want me to psychoanalyze you. <laughs> but that uh, you, you stay busy, don't you? I mean, you don't like – do you ever have existential crises? I feel like you don't have enough time to think about
2: yourself. I certainly have a full life uh, and I enjoy time to time looking up and trying to uh, think about what it is we're doing and why we're trying to do it. Uh, but you're right that that doesn't happen as frequently as I would like. hmm <laughs> What, spending time to yourself? It doesn't happen as frequently? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Gotcha, yeah.
0: gotcha. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good thing for the world. I don't know if it's good for you. <laughs> you probably could use some more downtime. But, uh, you know, I want to just, like I do like to do with my guests, is go back. Let's go back. So you got your PhD at Yale in 2002. Mm-hmm. I got my PhD at Yale in 2009. Oh. So who did you study with there?
2: Mazarin Banaji was my primary advisor.
0: Right. So when she was at Yale... And then she went to Harvard and you, did you move to Harvard as well?
2: Yeah. So in my last year of grad school, she relocated to Harvard and it so happened that my spouse got her clinical internship in Boston at that same time. So I, in fact, moved before Mazarin did and help set up the lab uh, that, she, that she was going to be moving to. And so I spent my last year sort of on a postdoc at Harvard instead of, but it was really just my last year of grad school. Gotcha. Are you like officially a co-creator of the implicit association test? Yeah, Tony Greenwald is the inventor. Okay. And then he and Mazarin had just started working on it with some of their collaborators, And then I got very involved in it right away and then built the website uh, that became Project Implicit. And so the three of us are co-founders of Project Implicit as a nonprofit organization. And then I ran that for the first 11 years of my faculty career.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I remember about seven years ago or so, I was teaching cognitive psychology at NYU, and I showed my students... Every semester, a video of the IET, and you're you're the one that talks in this video that I, that I show oh, you know, yeah. a younger looking version of you. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. No offense, we yeah. Yeah. all <laughs> age. I hate to break it to you. Oh, but,
2: yeah. oh, I yeah. heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 I, I don't look in mirrors just to yeah. just to be. <laughs> yeah.
0: But um, yeah. I mean, that's an irrelevant detail. But it's kind of surreal to now be talking to you, interacting with the real you. I showed yeah. that video to <laughs> my students every semester, and at that time. I talked about the IT and about how, you know, there's still a lot of research that needs to be conducted on it in the future. I wrote an article for Psychology Today around that time with some research kind of starting to cast some doubt on whether or not it's really how strong the correlation is with explicit racism, for instance. And I remember telling my students about, you know, we should really look at this with an open mind. Okay, let me ask this question first. Were you like ever a zealot of the IAT? Are you like a reformer now? Or is it more of like you always liked the IAT, but you had some of your own criticisms from the beginning, and then you spent many years refining and, and adding nuance to it? How would you describe the difference between where, where your state of mind was at back then when you were creating this thing and, and talking about it in public Yeah. and your state of mind now? How discrepant are those two state of minds?
2: Yeah. Well, I hope I've learned a lot from all of the research that we and others have done on it over the years. But the, sort of in the big picture, I have the same view uh, that I've had since we did the first set of studies to just sort of get a handle on what is this tool at all. And that is that it's a great tool for research purposes. Uh, mm. We've been able to learn a lot about the tool itself and about human behavior and interaction with the tool and a lot about The psychology of things that are occur with less control and less awareness uh, than just asking people how they feel about topics. Uh, So that it has been and continues to be a very productive uh, research area for trying to understand better how humans work. And then the main concern that we had at onset, and this is actually a lot of the discussion of even creating the website. Mm is the same anticipated some of the concerns and overuses that has happened with the IAT in the present. And that is the natural, I don't know if natural is the right word, but the common desire uh, that people have for simple solutions and thinking, well, a, a measure, is a direct indicator of something that we care about, uh, and it shouldn't have any error uh, in measurement, and it should be applicable to lots and lots and lots of situations. And there's lots of potential misuse of the IAT, despite it being a very productive research tool and education tool. I like uh, the experience of doing it and delivering it in an audience and the discussion that that provokes about what is it that it means, and what does it mean about me, what does it mean about the world? Those are really productive intellectual discussions and debates. But the risk parts are the overapplication of the IAT to uh, selection processes. We should use this for deciding who gets a job or not. Mm. We should use this to decide who's on a jury or not. Those are the kinds of app real-world applications of it as a measure that go far beyond uh, its validity. And so this isn't exactly answering your question because we, uh, even at the very beginning when we launched the website, we said it should not be used for these purposes. Mm. And I still believe that to be true. But what I have changed over time is the refinement of where it is we understand the evidence base against some of the major questions. And what's amazing about it is there's been so much research and we still don't have a great handle on really big questions relating to the IAT and and measures like it. So, that just is part of illustrating in this field of how hard it is to actually make progress on studying human behavior.
0: Oh, yeah. And we'll get to your more recent uh, Open Science Initiative and how that relates to that. But you know, let's stay in this. Let's stay in 2002 sure. to 2012 <laughs> for a second, you know. Sure. This time period of your life. Now, Let's talk shop a second. So my dissertation at Yale, a little bit a couple of years after yours, was looking at the question, Are there such a thing as individual differences in implicit cognition? And the idea was to, like, ask this question because, you know, from a trait perspective, I felt like that was a huge gap in the literature was there's so much research on the reliability and validity of IQ tests, for instance. But I wanted to ask the question, like if we adapt some of these implicit cognition measures from the social, psychological, and experimental literature for an individual differences paradigm, you know, are there reliable and stable differences? And I have a whole appendix of failed experiments. By the way, you should tell me how to publish that someday, but we'll get to that yeah. in a second. But I have a whole, but <laughs> so much of my dissertation where I guess, you know, I'm putting failed in quotes because, you know, I mean, what do you mean? That was so useful. You got what you got. Wasn't that yeah. useful? I thought that was useful information that, like, wow, the majority of these implicit, well, so I also worked implicit learning. So not just the kind of the IAT, yeah. but I'm talking about yeah. I looked at, like, you know, implicit learning, test artificial grammar. Learning and serial reaction time and all this stuff. And I found that virtually all of them, it was almost impossible to capture reliable individual differences that like cohered over time. And But I did find like one that did and I published that as the the serial reaction time task. But anyway, before we completely lose my audience, which is a general audience, (laughs) I just want (laughs) to say that I'm trying to link this because I feel like for me, one of the things that I am most wary about with the IAT is like, And then this might be more of a feature than a bug, but it may be capturing, you know, at this given moment at time when the person is taking that test, it's capturing a lot of what the societal norms and influences are on that person's associations, but not capturing so much an intrinsic sort of stable individual differences variable. So I just wanted to throw that out there and see what your current thoughts on that are.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's clear it is not trait-like in the same way that a measure like the big five uh, for personality is trait-like. It does show stability over time, but much more weakly than that. So across a variety of different topics, you might see a test-retest correlation uh, for the IAT trying to measure the same construct of around 0.5 the curiosity for this is, well, I guess there's a few curiosities. One is, does that mean that we have, it measures some degree of trade variance? It seems to do so because there is some stability over time. Then what's the rest? Is the rest error or is it state variance in some way, right? Some variation that is meaningful variation that is sensitive to the context of measurement. And surely it's some of both. But we don't know how much and there isn't yet real good insight on where the prediction components of the IAT are mm. uh, in how it anticipates behavior, right? If we could separate in a real reliable way, the trait part, the state part and the error part, yeah. then we should be able to uniquely predict different kinds of things between the, straight, the, the trait and the state and trait components. The other, another twist, which is very interesting, that's totally understudied in my uh, view, is that these, the variation in degree to which it's state versus trait-like, seems to vary by the topic uh, mm. that you're investigating. Mm. So when you do a Democrat Republican IAT, where you see how, to what extent do people favor one or the other in U.S. respondents, the correlation with self-report is very strong. Uh, and the stability over time is stronger than when you measure black, white, or, or some of the other right. uh, types of topics. So there is also something about the attitude construct itself that you're assessing that's not as much measurement-based, but is interacting with the measure that may anticipate the extent to which it's trait or state-like. So these are all interesting things that if I had time to study them, I, those are, would be the problems that I would continue to be studying, but I've had to leave that aside. Oh, there's a
0: million, a million interesting questions. Thank you for bringing that up, relating to the point I was trying to make about cultural influences on IAT. I mean, have you done yeah. an anal Like, it seems to me like it's a testable hypothesis to be like, okay, for instance, in more gender equality societies, let's say no. you like, you know, you look at average global IAT differences around the world. Do you find yeah. has that study been done? Like, to show that like, you know, in more gender equality societies, there's less bias in certain ways and others. I feel like that's an interest and open question. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. There are a number now because we've made oh, the cool. project implicit data publicly accessible. There are a number of investigations looking at re- regional differences. One that we published in 2009, I think it was, was an examination of the strength of implicit gender stereotypes about science versus humanities, right? The, ex- this, the extent to which I associate male with science or male with math. And we looked at that by nation and by nation that based on who came to the website, the strength of that stereotype is related to the sex gap in performance among eighth graders in that country. So places where the stereotype is stronger, the sex gap of men doing better than women in science and math standardized tests or boys versus girls in this case is larger And we can't say anything about the causal directions there, but at least it shows that there is a co-variation with things that are happening at a cultural scale, differences in engagement, performance uh, in these domains, and these implicit stereotypes as they're measured uh, indirectly. That is really, really cool. Yeah. It was in PNAS, I think, in 2009. So.
0: Well, that's really interesting. So, yeah, there are a lot of unanswered questions. In what ways do you think that the IT has been misapplied? I mean, you hinted at one, which is personnel selection. Yeah. So, that seems like, in what other ways? Can you just riff a little bit about, you know, I mean, this is really important when you think of the audience you have right now. You have a very large general audience. So, this is an opportunity to really, you know, explain a little bit about, you know, ways in which you think that society maybe has taken this a little too far beyond the science.
2: Yeah. So the other main thing that I spend a lot of time trying to correct the record, as it were, uh, in the public discussion, is on what is the likely impact of implicit bias training? So this isn't the IAT per se, but certainly the IAT research uh, has led to this sort of broad embrace of wanting to educate and train people about implicit bias. Great for education. I'm all for education. But then with this idea that if you go through an implicit bias training in your organization and learn about these, then you will no longer be a biased person. And the evidence there is not good for that being an effective method for actually changing behavior. I I give an education like this, and I think it's useful to educate organizations and individuals about implicit bias. But what I think the limits are, and this is based on some evidence that we've gathered, is that the training is really just education. It's like learning about a topic and knowing what the state of the science is. And at most, it will provide a basis for increasing motivation to do something about addressing unwanted biases within an organizational setting. But the training itself is not giving skills that will reduce it. Uh, This is sort of a a very hopeful, uh, but not a very behaviorally informed approach uh, to trying to address bias is thinking that just teaching someone about the existence of bias will be sufficient to get rid of it. Uh, and that, I think, has been, count- in some cases, been counterproductive to actually addressing some of the real disparities that are occurring uh, in society, because it's an oversimplified view of what really is a complex and structural problem of how it is that organizations define how hiring gets done, create decision processes, promotion processes, succession planning, all of the different aspects of effective organizational management. Really, the solutions are in how those decision processes are structured, rather than in trying to get people to have better intentions.
0: Yeah. It seems like that's very consistent with a recent study at Worden with, by Rebra Belle and Adam Grant and others. I don't know if you saw that study that came out recently trying I to assess no. the effectiveness of well diversity training. Maybe that's a little bit different. Okay. Maybe it's a little
2: bit different. Yeah, but it's probably a broader a broader, broader brush, yeah. uh, but but surely a diverse uh, implicit bias is featuring in a lot of diversity training yeah. these days.
0: Yeah. And it,
2: you touched on a really
0: interesting point about like, well, what is the best, like how would you measure the outcome of this like two-day or week training thing? I mean, it seems like that would not be a very good thing to like. Then go back to the IET and see a difference between IET pre and IET post. That doesn't seem like the best sort of outcome. You know, you would want.
2: Watch- <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it's like yeah, you, you yeah, you could start just focusing on let's change the IET and have that be the end of it. But yeah. of course, if that doesn't actually shift behavior, then what was the point? Yeah, what was the point? Yeah,
0: yeah. So there's there's so many dealing with such a, a systemic problem. It is dealing with a system of things, you know, that's like of interacting parts. And it does seem too simplistic to kind of just treat one part of the system as the cure-all. So great, I'm glad you made that point. What about the association here between this kind of research and the literature on microaggressions, for instance? Tell me if this is too far different, but it it intuitively feels to me like it's related to a similar genus of things where you have this assumption that some sort of like implicit or unconscious motivations are going to creep out, I guess, into external behavior of manifestation of behavior. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think they are conceptually related. I haven't seen a lot of good research showing a functional relationship. But the notion that things leak out and in ways that are unintended or automatic or hard to detect is, you know, thematic in the, in the microaggressions uh, discussion. Uh, and certainly that is consistent in a very global sense with this notion that we have thoughts and feelings that are either outside of our awareness or outside of our control that may be different than our conscious values, what we're trying to do in the moment. And we can be genuinely saying, I'm not trying to be biased. I am trying to be fair. I'm trying to engage this person as a person and nevertheless be influenced by other guys or influencing my behavior. And the detectability of those may differ by the perceiver and by the, by the actor. Uh, and that's, a, I think, a key part in that microaggressions literature.
0: Well, what is the latest state of the science on not just the microaggressions, but all of these genus of things? Because you're in the forefront of this. You know, to what extent do you think, like, we are really making advances in showing that there are these implicit influences on our explicit behavior that operate outside of our value system? Where are we at right now?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I can't really characterize the microaggressions literature per se. I don't uh, follow that okay. uh, as a distinct literature. But on the general point, I think it's the big picture story is pretty clear with evidence, which is we do things automaticity, we do things that are counter to our interests all the time. And sometimes we recognize that we're doing it, sometimes we don't. But a lot of times it's not controllable. So, but that's a very big picture very global, very nonspecific point.
0: By the way, so if that wasn't true, if that wasn't true, the mindfulness field would not be, people wouldn't be making so much money <laughs> off
2: of <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, so you're saying that you can yeah. only make money if things are true? Well, we've got some other conversations to have here. No, that
0: wasn't my point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah.
0: it, it wouldn't have been so hot and popular. People need it. Yeah. People clearly That's right. need so, it. Well, <laughs> well,
2: yeah, so, yeah, it's it, in, yeah, many parts of that are sort of obviously true. You you're right in the sense that, yeah, we recognize we're doing things counter to our interests all the time, right? We, yeah. we want to lose weight and we can't. We want to exercise more and we can't. We recognize that we're not interacting with our loved ones in the way that we want to, and yet we still do it. So there's, there's e- it's easy to recognize that there are factors that are outside of our own control that are inside our own minds that are influencing our behavior. And that's a very important insight where the science does not have a great handle yet is clarifying when that happens and precisely how that happens and then what to do about it when it happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are some places where it's a lot better. For example, the training of uh, specific phobias, right? Cognitive behavioral therapies for Mm -hmm. specific phobias is really effective, even though that's a problem that people can't easily overcome just by sheer will, there are treatment approaches that address it in a very effective and efficient way. But at scale, across the range of human behaviors that we have, we still have a lot to learn about how to address that. That's for sure.
0: So give me, like, something that, us, that you discover, psychologists have discovered, that is not obvious. <laughs> like, give me, like, <laughs> not, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, it's like, why are we doing all this research, you know, to just yeah. show that, that the unconscious has influences on behavior? Like, give me, um, let's talk about some specific studies. I'll pick out one because I was going down your Google Scholar uh, things yesterday of new studies, preprints, that have come out. Here's an interesting one, how ideology impairs sound reasoning. So, and this yeah. is research that was led by Anub Gampa, Yeah. And and colleagues, that you're on this list. So this seems very relevant to our current uh, political landscape. So do you think a lot of people, or do you think the research is suggesting that our ideology, like, creeps into what, you know, we think is this pure reasoning process?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's easy for us to recognize that, When, if I am a conservative and you hear and you're liberal and you hear me make an argument about some issue that has a conservative liberal difference, it's easy to understand that you would disagree with my claims and perhaps even the assumptions underlying my claims, right? I just don't agree that, you know, this is the way that society should work or the Mm. economy actually works. That's not surprising. What we'd found in this research. Is that that disagreement, your dislike of my conservative position on something, even makes it harder for you to recognize the logical reasoning in it. Mm. Whether the reasoning, you'll be better at detecting logical errors in your liberal, and you'll be worse at recognizing sound reasoning regardless of whether you believe the content or not, right? So there's a difference between soundness, the premises, the conclusions follow from the premises, then from whether the premises and the conclusions are themselves true. And ideology is so strong that it impacts even our ability to see whether the, the arguments have logical coherence to them when we disagree with the claims in them. Uh, so that just, to me, shows how deep uh, and difficult it is to actually have productive debates Across different when there are ideological differences.
0: Yeah, it's a great example. It seems to me like it's becoming increasing, increasingly more difficult in this society or this political landscape to be ideology free, even if you want to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. almost like
2: you're
0: you're penalized these days for trying your best to be logical. Yeah. And see things from other perspectives. It's like yeah. Pick a stand, man. <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> right. So, right. yeah. Right. So, we even have a paper from a few years ago. Carly Hawkins was the lead author okay. that we called Motivated Independence. And what we did was we identified people who said that they were independent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. They do not subscribe to a political left or political right. And we gave them an IAT. Uh, and the IAT measured their implicit preference for Democrats versus Republicans and even among people who declare that they are independent uh there is wide variation in whether they were pro-democrat or pro-republican some were close to the middle some were very pro-left some were very pro-right but that, that's not where it stopped what we then did was we presented them uh with a paper where two different policies were proposed and we randomized whether policy A was proposed by the republican or policy B was proposed by the Republican, and then the Democrat proposed the other one. And then we just asked them, which policy do you prefer, A or B? Hmm. And it turns out that among these independents, their implicit preference for Democrats versus Republican predicted hmm. whether they so which policy they supported. If they were implicitly pro-left, they tended to select uh, the policy that, whichever one it was, that the Democrats supported. So, these ideologies creep in everywhere. Uh, and even when we're trying to be uh, unbiased, as it were, independent, uh, if we have any of that in our minds, it may uh, yet shape how it is we make our decisions. Wow, that is a
0: truly a cool study, by the way. Really neat, good example of how this is relevant to our current landscape. But the idea of, I'm really trying to wrap my head around this idea of an unconscious association being pro, like you said, pro Republican, pro Democrat, as if like our unconscious has its own value system that may be separate from our explicit uh-huh. value. So are there, are there implicit values and explicit values? Has the field
2: distinguished between those? Yeah. Two? <laughs> That's a good question. And that uh, that may imply more richness uh, than what is uh, justified in how it is these are represented in the mind. Mm. When I say pro Democrat or Republican, all I mean is that what we do with these measures is a relative assessment. How much more easily do you associate goodness with Democrats versus Republicans? And if it's easier for you to put good with Democrat than good with Republican, then you're pro-Democrat. So it may be as very base level as a simple associative or affective uh, relationship. Or it could be that a lot of this stuff is more rich, like you're describing, and actually has some representation about value systems and things that we normally would associate with much more deliberate thinking. Yeah, because I mean, you could
0: imagine uh, someone living in a society where uh, because of the people around them, let's say you live in a society where everyone's racist around you, you're explicitly racist, explicitly, and you're not explicitly racist, and that is very much against your Value system, and it's picking up. And you take this test, and just shows you're easier to categorize. You know, African Americans as as bad, I guess, or whites as good. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to say that, like, that means that person is pro-white. You know what I mean? Like, using the same analogy to you saying pro-republican or pro-democrat. I mean, would you say that someone is just
2: because they're easier to categorize something? yeah so you're raising a good question, which is what do we call these things? Yeah, uh, when they're associations in the mind, and we, usually when we talk about things like beliefs or attitudes or related concepts, we're thinking in terms of endorsement, right? This is what that person says they believe, and so they do believe it. And when we're talking about implicit measures, we're not talking about endorsement. People don't have an opportunity to say, "I agree or disagree with this," mm-hmm. and they may genuinely disagree when confronted with those associations, right? So I have these implicit biases in my own mind. I would reject them, the ones that are different than my conscious values. I would reject them out of hand, and yet they are still in my mind. We have embraced the notion of calling the association between, say, racial categories or political categories and evilness or badness, we've called those implicit attitudes deliberately to try to make the argument that an attitude isn't just what we consciously believe, that the same sorts of behavioral consequences could occur with that kind of association of a group with goodness or badness, even if you don't endorse it, just because it exists in the mind. And that is different than their conscious beliefs but it is still attitudinal in the sense of its consequences. Uh, And so this is a real interesting part of how we debate and think about terminology uh, and then what its implications are uh, for how you understand both the concepts and their implications. Oh, for sure. I'm not fully understanding why attitudes is the right word there. Like
0: Even that seems like it's a loaded subjective call. Why not just call it implicit habits or implicit patterns? Like a post association is calling it what it is versus attitudes. It seems like you're imparting some sort of subjective label on what it is.
2: Yeah, well, I think ultimately every label is a subjective label in that sense. So the question is what is the most psychologically appropriate for what the terms mean? Mm -hmm. And there's a great Mazarin Banaji and Tony Greenwald, my advisors and collaborators on this work, published a paper in nineteen ninety-five where they made the case for implicit social cognitions being attitudes and stereotypes with the qualifier implicit to make very clear, not endorsed. What they did in their development of that argument in part was go reference the definitions of attitudes that we have been working with as a field for many years and sort of unpack them and said, look at these definitions. None of them imply what a lot of our measurement Approaches have done to try to assess attitudes, none of them Im- imply, for example, that the person believes it or endorses it or says it. Uh, they all talk about attitudes in a v- much more functional way or whatever each of the definitions were so these are they These are consequential, but I think they all are also important for all of our psychological theories and terminologies is that we imbue them with meaning, and it is important to Represent as clearly as possible what that meaning is, yeah, and the intention of that meaning is, uh, because words have ambiguity and people use them in different ways. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it'd be easy for me to uh,
0: say, okay, let's move on now to open science. But I think <laughs> this is a, you know, this is something. It's such a great opportunity to talk to you about this uh, because it's just been, it's been on my mind a while. Like, yeah. you know, like the book Blind Spot. It's called the book is called Blind Spot Sub Colon Hidden Biases of Good People. And that was written by both of your uh, advisors, right? Mm-hmm. Benaji and Greenwald. Now, when you read that, obviously coming from a, a place of immense respect and love for them and their research, I mean, what do you think they were exaggerated things at all in that book?
2: I don't know if I would say that or not. I'd have to go and look at specific claims to decide whether I think the calibration of the, on the evidence is, is off the mark. In general, my recollection of reading, it's been a while now, was that I thought it was a good popular summary of the state of the research literature at that point in time. And I don't think a whole lot has changed in, in the research literature in terms of the broad brush conclusions. Okay. Yeah, but this is an, you know, like I said before, the, there's lots that we're learning. And there are, have been lots of things that each of us has assumed along the way of, oh, I bet this is going to happen where we're all confronted with evidence of, oh, no, that's not actually how it works. Mazarine has this great chapter from like mid-2000s. I'm forgetting what, when it exactly it was published. But it's a chapter that's all about how her grad students showed she was wrong on different things. Hmm. And one of the examples is on the malleability of implicit evaluations. She went into the work saying, no, 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 these things are fixed. They're not going to change at all. They're not going to change easily. This is not going to happen. And then she had a series of grad students. That said, I don't know about that, and did some studies to show, like you were just talking about, that they're not so trait based; that they are state uh, influenced. Right. And she was blown away by that. And it was like, "Oh, geez, okay, I guess I guess maybe that isn't how it is." And of course, even that, the pendulum has swung back some. So we've had more recent studies that we have found that yeah, they may be variable by the context, but they're actually really hard to get stable change from any of the interventions uh, that we've tried. So even just one area of evidence about implicit biases, we sort of think, okay, they're, they're not just stable, they're variable. Oh, in fact, wait a second. They're not totally variable. They're, they're varying, but they're not changing. Okay, wait, okay. So when are they changing and what does that mean if they're not changing and they're variable so that as we dig into the problem, it just gets more and more complicated, which, you know, that's great in many ways. It keeps us very busy and learning and everything else. Uh, But it just shows, like we were talking before, about how hard it is to make real real progress on real common behaviors, like what people do. Yeah, for sure.
0: Absolutely. You know, I'm really trying to think this through in terms of, like, at the uh, conscious level of associations. Won't there always be uh, bias? in one direction? Like what would an equality of implicit associations look like? You know, let's say we reverse it and we say, you know, white's bad, black's good. Is that the society we want to live in either? You know, like I'm just trying, I'm trying to think what is a quality? You're never going to have an implicit association test where it's like everything is good and nothing is bad. Or I'm just thinking like our implicit system is always going to be biased in some direction. Bias is not always, and bias is not always bad, right? Yeah. I think that's a
2: critical point, right? Is that we've, societally we've sort of pejorative judgment about if you're biased that means something's wrong with you right and that's a really unfortunate because a lot of these biases come from very ordinary operations of the mind uh, for one and are in fact things that we endorse right the same mental systems that lead me to be wanting to call my doctor rather than my mechanic when my back hurts are the same things that lead me to have biases of kinds that I would disagree with. And that is, you hear things in the world, you see things related to other things, and your brain stores that information. And sometimes it's information that you would agree with and you want to use, and it's still a bias in the very functional sense of it leads you to do one thing over another thing. Uh, but it's not an unwanted bias. It's not even a, bi- it's a bias. I'd be perfectly happy to say, yes, of course, I prefer my doctor to my mechanic when my back hurts because right. I have a bias, a belief uh, that's grounded in whatever it's grounded in that yeah. I think that person is going to do a better job than that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. The challenge, of course, is that we don't always get purely accurate information exposed to us. And we don't necessarily agree with the information that we do get exposed to. And But nevertheless, it gets in our heads and it has potential to influence our actions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some instances where some people will say things like, oh, came out, I'm biased against males. Whew, I'm safe. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. and, and then, yeah. you know, and everyone laughs at that. But then you say you're biased against right. females and everyone come like, you know, get mobbed on Twitter. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, the right. thing. I guess the point is like, I'm a humanist, you know, I'm a humanistic psychologist. I want to think yeah. through what it would mean to live in a world where, you know, we didn't say it was great to be biased against Anyone except Nazis we all can be biased against yeah. Nazis, but uh, do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think so. One sort of thing where I think I resonate with what you're saying is that the goal of the project, if there is a social agenda linked to the scientific agenda, just to understand how these things work is not very usefully thought of as let's get rid of bias right. uh, because that's sort of like saying let's get rid of perception uh, right? Right. we can't see <laughs> you know it's just it's the mind does that yeah. uh, and it's going to do that yeah. if there is a social justice project it's let's make sure that our values are the things that are driving our behaviors oh, to good. the extent that we can, right? Yeah. And when they're misaligned, that's an opportunity to figure out how is it that we can improve our decision-making process, the identification of those potential biases, some intervention. But it really should be about matching our values with our behavior rather than saying, well, we just have to be bias-free in some, well, I don't even know what it would mean, as, as you were saying, uh, yeah. to be bias-free in right. some functional.
0: Great, perfect. Let's end let's end that this topic that this conversation on that note. So let's now move into the reproducibility project. Sure. Now, why did you start that? What year did you start that? Why did you start that? What was going on in the culture and psychology at that time that was the impetus for this?
2: So we launched the reproducibility project in 2011, and it it came up in the context of a discussion that was had been going at a low hum in psychology and other fields uh for decades which is we're not so sure that the research literature is as credible as we assume it is published findings we presume are based on a some degree of likelihood of being true or credible evidence but there are things that happen Uh, in research practice that may undermine that credibility, right? Like, for example, positive results, finding a relationship between something or finding that intervention works are more likely to be reported uh, than not finding anything, finding a negative relationship, finding that this thing doesn't work. And so that might be biasing the literature. People might be making decisions about how they analyze their data and only reporting the ones that make the findings look as publishable or as credible as possible, undermining the actual credibility of the evidence. So there's been this discussion for decades about these things uh, seem to be happening, uh, might be undermining the credibility of the literature, and we're kind of worried about it, uh, but there hadn't been much change. Mm. But in 2011, a few different things happened that, at least within psychology, seemed to help to foment a much broader cultural discussion. One was a major fraud scandal, uh, Diedrich uh in oh, yeah. the Netherlands. You know, created out of fifty papers, ended up something like that getting retracted of made-up data that people hadn't seen. They they seen the papers, but no one recognized mm. for many years that these papers were based on no evidence at all. People hadn't tried to replicate them to in order to evaluate uh, whether those are uh, reproducible evidence. So. There was a worry that, how is it that we never even recognized as a field about this fraudulent evidence getting into the literature? What's wrong with our practices? So the other major event in 2011 was that Daryl Bem, who is a prominent uh, social psychologist and has done lots of excellent work for many years, published a paper uh, in the most prestigious social psychology journal showing evidence for ESP. And people were shocked. How is it that this journal that is a premier peer-reviewed uh, journal would publish evidence for something that we're pretty sure isn't true? And the answer was that the paper was beautiful. It was beautiful in the sense that it followed all of the rules for what one does to get evidence and to publish that evidence uh, in psychology. And so the editor said, well, t- look, it's just like every other paper that we would end up accepting because it did all of the things we expect to do. It just comes to a conclusion that we don't believe. And so the the debate that followed that was this followed all the rules. No one's suggesting he did something wrong or different than everyone else does. If he followed all the rules, then either we now need to believe ESP or we need to question the rules. How is it that we end up reporting Uh, doing and reporting on the evidence uh, for our research findings. So that was sort of the global context was these sort of stunning events uh, along with this long history of concern about the credibility of the literature. So we started the reproducibility project with a goal of saying, boy, everybody's worrying about the credibility of research findings. The, The normal way that researchers evaluate the credibility of findings is to replicate them. Right, You see a finding, you say, that's interesting, I'm not so sure, or, oh, I want to use that and extend it in some way. I'll run a replication, see if I can use the same methodology and then get the similar result. Uh, but people don't tend to do that because it's not rewarded very much. So we said, let's organize a project with a bunch of us and we'll try to replicate a sample of findings and see if we can reproduce the results that are in the literature. Uh, and Ruh-roh, so
0: we just, row. yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. So we just
2: started it as a, uh, you know, sort of informally and made an announcement on, you know, some discussion group online, social media somewhere. And hundreds of people joined the project. We ended up the final paper, which was published in 2015, uh, had 270 co authors and another 80 something people helped in some way, just short of authorship. So it was this massive crowdsourced effort where a hundred replications were done from a sample of uh, paper uh, leading journals uh, in psychology, and that you know the sh- the short summary is we were able to successfully replicate uh, less than half, about forty percent of the findings that we tried to reproduce, and so that just spawned a, it, or at least helped to foment this what was now a very robust discussion about what are the challenges for reproducibility reproducibility uh, in psychology uh, and beyond psychology. This is now an issue that is prominent across all research domains.
0: Uh, I would say less so in my field, which is personality psychology. Oh, you would you. All right. Okay. <laughs> but I, those are kind of fighting words to say that to Brian Nosek. No <laughs> but there, there was a study that was done recently to see whether or not the same sort of replicability crisis is operating in personal psychology. And it was like on the much higher than 50% of the things are replicating in that field.
2: Yeah, although it was a very specific subset of findings. So I, while I do uh, believe that the – and we even have evidence in our own studies that some of the personality findings, uh, the, the rate might be a bit higher than others, it is not a challenge that is – that has been avoided across disciplines, uh, writ large, including personality research.
0: For sure, I don't want to be hubristic. <laughs> I don't want to be hubristic, but I, I'm stating a datum. You know, yes. like they did this, but maybe we'll see if that study replicates. That's that's like a meta, yeah. Repli- meta right. replication. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, does it replicate? The, a lot of the things do replicate. Will yours replicate? Will your yeah. science paper replicate? Will it come out that it actually it's actually um, anyway higher than forty percent.
2: Yeah. Well, in fact, we are doing a replication of that yeah. of a subset of that study oh, so that, you know, we had those 100 and one of the criticisms uh, that was levied, there's lots of uh, people raised criticisms, but one of them that, uh, yeah, I think that's a real important limitation is that maybe the replication team screwed up, right? right? <laughs> there's a very plausible reason. It's like, well, geez, does, who said that we did a good job of it, right? Maybe the reason we failed to replicate is because we stink at doing it. And there are 10 of the five papers, 10 of the replications in the reproducibility project where the original authors had raised some concerns prior to running the study. Uh, So they said, you know, and they're presumably pretty expert, right? They did the original research and they had identified something uh, that they said, I'm not so sure about this, ranging from, you know, moderate concern to major potentially. But the replication team said, well, we think we can still do a fair replication despite that concern. Nine of those 10 uh, failed to replicate in uh, the reproducibility project. So those 10 are a perfect test hypothesis, which is if we actually can meet those concerns that they raised, revise the studies to try to do it in the way that the original author said you need to do it this way in order to get the effect, then we should be able to find evidence of this impact of expertise In improving replicability. Mm. So we're running an experiment right now where actually data collection is done. We're we're getting close to the analysis phase uh, where those 10 studies have now been replicated multiple times with the process that we did in the reproducibility project that they had raised concerns about. And a revised one that meets the uh, concerns uh, that were raised to try to maximize the quality of the replication, and we'll see is this plausible reason for some failures to replicate an actual reason in these cases oh, that's really great that's really great, Brian. What are some
0: like old chestnuts that have not replicated like you know some things that are taught as, as staples in introductory psychology textbooks you know what are some just name a couple
2: yeah well, this is there are areas that have had particular attention for being challenging to replicate. And of course, that doesn't mean uh, that they're wrong, uh, but it does mean that we don't yet understand what's needed to make these findings reproducible, uh, if they are reproducible at all. And the two of the biggest ones in the public discussion are about ego depletion. The idea that our ego is like a muscle, right? You use it a lot and you get tired. And so once you've been working hard to regulate yourself in some way, then you may be more likely after that to be blurting out things that you don't want to do or doing things that are uh, less – uh, effective so what's in my sort of self-regulation and management. Right. What's my excuse when I'm not tired? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah, well, that's something else that you as a personality psychologist should be able to tell us about. Uh, but uh, So that's one where uh, there's lots and lots of research about it uh, and lots of exciting findings, but attempts to replicate some of those central findings have not been successful, or at least not very successful. And so now there's a lot of debate of what in that literature is credible and what isn't, and that's not resolved. And then the other that's gotten a very, a ton of attention is very generally called social priming, which isn't a super informative label, but it's the idea that very subtle cues may influence our behavior in surprising ways so the classic uh demonstration is by having people get exposed incidentally to words relating to oldness florida cane other things uh then they later will do things that make it look like they are older, like walk slower down a hallway when they leave the experiment compared if they weren't primed with these words meaning oldness. And so there's a lot of interesting demonstrations of these ways that subtle primes may influence our behavior. And that's been a very hot, uh, both heat and light area for uh, debate about replicability with some high profile failures to replicate. So there's, the current state of the literature right now is not one where there are clear answers. Oh, here, okay, here are all the findings in our literature. These are the ones that are replicable and these are the ones that aren't. Mostly, it is a morass of debates of, oh, this one's been challenging to replicate. And people say, well, I think it's because you did this, or I think it's because of this reason, or I think it works here and not there. And to me, that's a, as long as it stays focused on the evidence, that's a very productive kind of discussion to be having. We work on complicated stuff. And so some attention to trying to figure out the conditions under which those core findings actually are observable is very effective and useful uh, for improving our theories, for understanding how it is those things work. Absolutely.
0: What about the fundamental attribution, not bias? Is that still fundamental? (laughs)
2: Yeah, well, the fundamental portion of that has actually evolved a lot over time. So Uh, we changed the label? (laughs) Yeah. So the uh, term uh, that is common now for a portion of it is called the correspondence bias. So we don't need to get into the details for uh, why and the distinction between that and the fundamental attribution error. Uh, and there's been interesting debates on whether it's an error uh, or not. Uh, or a bias. So, or a bias, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. So uh, this- <laughs> We've come full circle. <laughs> right, right. And there is a come full circle that is unproductive, which is you just keep spinning in the same place. And there is a cyclical nature of scientific advancement that's very productive. Revisions that we have about any area of research to sort of check in and say, hang on a second. You know, we thought about this this way. Let's look at it from this new perspective now that we have new evidence and see if we can revive an old claim or see if we can refine uh, the way that we understand it. So by hmm. and large, I am find the, what has been happening uh, within our literature to be very exciting recently hmm. because I think we are questioning assumptions in a, in a quite productive way.
0: Yeah. A lot of people are, are excited about it. There are a couple of people who are not excited about it. And those are those whose life's work is shown to not replicate. It. So, I mean, hopefully they, I mean, yeah. I mean, I say that like in a cheeky way, but
2: having some compassion as well for the, the scientists. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Scientists by and large are human and we get attached most. to our findings. Yeah. Most. Yeah. We, we won't talk about the yeah. ones that aren't. Yeah. <laughs> all the, but the, but a clue is they all have a last name that starts with a Z. Uh, The But the... Challenge, of course, is that we treat those findings like possessions, right? They become the basis of our identity as a, in our profession. And so it's very understandable if we're thinking of these things as possessions that we would get defensive about them and that they would have implications for our reputation when they get challenged. And some challenges are fair and some are not fair. And so there is a lot of person in these debates rather than them just being purely scientific. And if we don't recognize that in how it is we conduct the debates, then there'll be more unfortunate interpersonal consequences than there need to be. There will inevitably be consequences for people's reputations because science is a reputation-based discipline and, and some work is more robust than other work. But you're right, the compassion part of that is a key part of how one walks into this kind of work.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's so easy just to say, oh, the problem is, well, just don't hitch your identity to it. I, I <laughs> actually, I, I think that yeah. it, there's a deeper issue. There's a deep yeah. existential issue here. You, If you spend 30 years of your career it's making sacrifices in your life, we have a short yeah. lifespan. And I didn't marry this person or I didn't take this job. I didn't have this child yeah. because I did this work. I guess I just, I really like feel... I almost feel like it's a little bit too dismissive to say, well, we just have to be these Spocks and rise above and not hitching identity to our science. No, we have made these sacrifices in our lives, what we're going to commit our lives to studying. So perhaps in the way we have these debates, we could come from a place of like, well, you know, look, hey, this work that you spent 30 years studying added a lot of value because it showed us better boundary conditions or better ways forward for methodologies without you having done that work. We couldn't have used that as a stepping stone. But instead, I see a lot of these discussions devolving in a different direction of like, it doesn't lead from that place. It almost ignores like the fundamental sacredness of a a human existence. There's the scientists who just make fun of things, you know, and mock them. And that's got to hurt if you've like, yeah, you really have contributed, even if it didn't all replicate, you still Like your
2: life had value, (laughs) you know? Do do you know what I mean? So it it, it gets deep, but yeah, no, I think you're right that this is much deeper than a very simple. Come on, don't be so attached to your findings, right? That's if anything, it's psychologically naive to think that we could do that. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right? right, right, right. If anything, right? (laughs) Come on, we're psychologists. We know that's not going to happen. So let's at least recognize that we are going to feel that, and whatever in whatever position we are in any given debate we should be able to at least empathize with the other positions of if my work was being attacked uh, or challenged or whatever productive or unproductive term you want to use uh, how would i respond and there's there's a lot uh, that we can understand of how we we are tied uh, to our findings and our claims and the work that we've done uh, in the past and simultaneously we do need to go, th- go through that, yeah. uh, right? And that's the real challenge is that it's, y- y- you know, the, the flip of what you're describing is also equally problematic, which is to say, oh, we don't want to challenge people because it'll make them feel bad. Mm. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> we really have to. Science is about skepticism. And really, it is our commitment to what it is we are doing in the first place to make it so that our claims are as robust and evidence-based as possible. And sometimes that's going to mean, in fact, most of the time, that's going to mean wrong about pretty serious claims that Mm. that we've made. And so at base, I think cultivating an intellectual humility is a real key part for everybody in the game, right? Mm. Whether you're criticizing uh, or whether you are defending a particular position, the intellectual humility of uncertainty, of knowing that I might be wrong, but I still think this is a a debate worth having uh, is is. Is hard to do, easy to say, uh, but super important. Oh, I love that! I love that.
0: What you, that point you just made. So it seems to me like the, there's a shift going on that is healthy in sort of the spirit upon which we're doing psychological science. I think for too long in the field of psychological science, people's the spirit upon which you did it is sort of like, oh, so I could own this theory, you know, like. It's Zimbardo's model. Do you know what I mean? I started to try to pick out Zimbardo there for a second, but um, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> disease happened. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you primed me. <laughs> you subconsciously primed me. <laughs> it <laughs> it works. works. It works. <laughs> it works. There you go. There you go. But like, I think there's a lesson we can learn from this that I'm personally trying to learn too. And it's like, it's like science. It's fun though. Like, it's it fun if you change your mindset about this to, like, it's all, we're all in explorers. We're exploring uncharted territory. The uncharted territory can change. You know, like, the problem is, like, clearly when you, you attach your ego to a result or a finding, but psychological science, the field doesn't have to be that way. Like we can, right. it just seems like it's more fun when like, it's like, Oh, let's do this study. And you know, who knows is what's good. What, well, it is good sometimes to pre-register predictions. Not, you can't be totally exploratory, but at least like being open to like, you know, what's going to happen. Like we're in this sort of like sailboat or something all together, but all together though, you know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it seems like there's, yeah. So does this make sense? There's sort of like a shift in yeah. kind of the, the healthier spirit of the field.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think there is I think that positive shift is underway and and the way that we've phrased it in some papers uh is really cultivating instead of the desire to be right it's the desire to get it right, right? And mm. just that just that shift yeah. would open us up more to the challenge being an opportunity. Right? There's in the in open source software development when another software developer points out a bug in your code and says, here's a fix uh, for your bug, people don't say, you jerk. Why are you pointing out this bug in my code? Right? Mm-hmm. The reaction is, oh, thank you. Yeah. Now my code works better. That's fantastic. And we could do more of that. But an important part of what makes that work, I think, is that the solution is often part of that discussion. Right? It isn't just you are wrong and you're wrong. It's you're wrong and here's some evidence that we can use to get less wrong. And that can make it much more productive in terms of a a scientific dialogue. Absolutely. So
0: open science is uh, this broader framework where you're giving... You explain explain to me, how about the world's authority on open science explains to me what open science is, as opposed to me explaining it to you.
2: (laughs) So open science is the idea that one of the ways that we can be more effective in accelerating discovery, finding solutions, developing knowledge is by showing the basis of evidence for the claims that we make. So it's not just enough for me to tell you, here's my paper and this is what I found, but rather I should show you. Here's the process uh, that I went through. Here's the initial plans that I had and what I was going to do with the study and how I was going to analyze the data so you can compare against what I ended up saying. Here are the data and here are the materials and methods that I used so that if you want to interrogate the data with alternative specifications, you could do that. Or you could take the materials and you could run a replication more easily yourself. And also, open science means that anybody that has the wherewithal, the interest, the skills, the time, the resources to contribute to the scientific process should have avenues uh, to contribute either as a producer or a consumer of that research. Mm. So it has a strong inclusivity aspect that we have thought of the scientific process as isolated to elite groups, right? In the elite places as mm. doing the science. But we can distribute that a bit better. There are ways to get more people involved and more avenues to get involved uh, in scientific research. So both of these parts uh, of open science I think are critical for making uh, the science itself more robust and for making it easier to leverage the very the wide range of skills and interests and talents that people have for contributing.
0: Well, oh, thank you so much for advancing the field so much in that direction. What is this uh, expression I saw I
2: uh, came across bro science pound bro science what is bro science bro yeah bro open science is a term that's come up in social media that's referencing how open science movement just like any movement has the for going in directions that reinforce some of the uh status or inequality hierarchies and activities uh that can occur in everyday life and i think every community and every movement has uh, those risks, uh, is an ongoing and present risk, right? And social media in particular can foment uh, the worst in social communication because Mm -hmm. it can amplify the more extreme voices, the more hostile voices, and you can lose sort of the view of that most people are just trying to be decent, trying to do a good job, and just trying to get the work done and talk about it. When the the real hostility becomes uh, so amplified. Mm. Uh, So I think that's partly the origin of that term and, and an ongoing part of the discussion is, yeah, we have values for how we're trying to improve science. We also need to be attending to the values of who should be able to be contributing and how they're contributing uh, to the science. Beautiful. Yeah, I like this tweet of
0: yours. You, you wrote, Twitter is the perfect communication medium if the goal is to escalate conflict as rapidly as possible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I thought yeah. that was, that was right. great. That was great. Right. Yeah, well, it it's true, right? Because yes. what can you do? That's you why it's great. It's it's true. Yeah. And now suddenly, yeah. <sighs> right? yeah. so it just gets worse and, worse and worse. So,
0: again, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for talking to me about all your work. And I hope that we can work together to balance getting it right with being kind to others. Yeah. So, thank you yes. so much for being on the podcast today, Brian.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for doing it.
0: Thanks for listening to The
2: Psychology Podcast.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. That's BetterHELP.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually,